May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus seeing the crowds. And he sees the crowds, Matthew writes, and he goes upon a mountain and he sits down and he calls his disciples and he begins to teach them. When he sits down, it's not that he's just getting comfortable. It's, um, it's an ancient rabbinic way of teaching. When the rabbis were to teach, they would sit, and their disciples would sit around them. Uh, the, the, the rabbi would sit a little higher than the disciples, and they would sit down at his feet, and, and he would sit in that position and begin to teach. It would be not unlike the way that we do, and the, the, the priest walked into the pulpit. This is a, a place of teaching, a, a, a moment when when interpretive work is going to go on. And he begins to teach them, and you remember how it went last week perhaps, or at least at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, if you weren't here, where he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And so on. And I said last week that these words wouldn't be to the people who heard them words of kindness and gentleness and kind of lofty words. They would be shocking, provocative, Like, oh my goodness, what are you saying? That seems total opposite of what everything that we would understand. Jesus begins then in this sermon to lay out an alternate way of life, a way of peace. And he reminds the people that our war, the the war of the, of the, the citizens of the kingdom of God, is not against other people. St. Paul will flesh this out a little bit more in his letter to the Ephesians when he'll say, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our, our, Our battle is not against other people. And so Jesus begins to show a different way of life, a way of life that goes like this. Humility, empathy, gentleness. Not arrogance, not force. It's a, it's a radical way to live. And it really is radical. I think that word is misused a lot in, in uh, common parlance. Radical is from the Latin radix. It means the root. At the root, a very different way to live. Jesus is offering this to his followers. And because of that, this radical way of life is going to be provocative. Now, Jews who lived during his um, Jesus' day, what we call the Second Temple Period or the first century, um, would have been uh, sort of astonished by this teaching because they have a um, they have a way of life that demands fierce nationalism. I mean, their their identity is caught up in a political idea of of unity of the nation and and you know separatism from all the rest of the world. We need a a nationalistic movement, and the Greco-Roman world much more inclusive. But they would have been really seeking after wealth and power. And Jesus is offering his followers a different way, a different way than both of these. Rather, nationalism and its exclusivity or the pursuit of money and power. It's a way of peace, where his followers are internally at peace and externally at peace. And he gives us to this idea in this part of the Sermon on the Mount today with two metaphors. You heard them? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light. And probably the best way to deal with this is to sort of break down these metaphors. What does he mean, you are the salt of the earth? Um, the word uh, salt um, 
actually at root is the same as the word for salary. It's also the same as the word for soldier. Um, Saurium in Latin. Saurium is both soldier salary. Because soldiers used to be paid in the ancient world in salt. It was a commodity like money. You've heard this language, you know, this idiom, uh, the person is worth his or her salt. Um, that is, they're worth whatever that they are paid. They're, they're worth the investment that you would make in them. Salt was very important in the ancient world. It was a preservative. It, it, it kept things um, from being rancid, uh, particularly food. Uh, fishermen would go out to make a large catch of fish. There was no refrigeration. These fish either had to be eaten immediately or preserved in some way, and salt was the best way. And so they were salted, sometimes later smoked, but also salt was the main thing. We can preserve this, this fish or meat of other sorts with, um, with salt. It's a way in which we can keep something that might decay from decaying. It had a preservation factor. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus is saying. You have a preserving factor in the community and in the world. You have something that is counterintuitive. Where there is so much decay, you can preserve this, he says to his followers. Salt also has another um, attribute about it, a much more pleasant one. It's flavor, right? It's, 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 it tastes good. It helps things to taste good, and you know it. You've sat down at a table, and, you, and if any of you have ever had to, like, you know, moderate your salt. It's really a difficult thing, isn't it? You're like, oh, I'd like some more salt on this. Uh, it, it tastes good. Salt is some ways the aesthetic to one's um, palate, like, like music is to the ears or, or art to the eyes. It, it's, it's pleasant. It, it brings beauty and delight. You, Christian, with humility and meekness and mercy and so on, you are bringing beauty to the world. You preserve the world. You bring beauty to the world. There's a warning there, wasn't there? Did you hear the warning? But be careful. I mean, what, what good is salt? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's a rhetorical question. It cannot be. What happens to salt? It gets diluted. And when it gets diluted, the, 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 it's worth nothing. He, Jesus says the only thing it's left good for is to throw it out into the street and you can kind of, you know, use it for gravel to walk along. Now, what we probably miss is in, in a Semitic mindset, the ancient Near Eastern world, and even today in, in the Middle East, the bottom of the shoe, very disgusting. Never, if you go to the Middle East, do you show the bottom of your shoe. Don't cross your leg and, and let somebody see. Because it's a total dis- Oh, that you would be in so much trouble. Yeah. <laughs> You're okay here. You're, you're safe ground. But in the Middle East, no way. Jesus is saying you would, you would be worthless. You're the salt of the earth. You preserve the planet. You preserve the community of, of humanity. You preserve and you bring beauty and delight to it. But be careful. Don't become deluded. And then there's a second metaphor he gives. You are the light of the world. We understand this, right? You've had that experience where you're in a strange hotel room. It's really dark because they have these super dark curtains. <laughs> the lights are all out. 
dummy you forgot to turn on the light in the bathroom or anything like that, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you find the corner of the mini fridge, don't you? You know, with that toe. And you know what you say, thank you, Jesus, or something like that, you know, and you let out some sort of, oh my goodness, it's painful. If only, if only, I thought that was really funny, if only there was a little bit of light, you know, if we could have only just seen a little bit, we wouldn't be in pain. Um, I remember a number of years ago, I was... Um, I was with my uh, oldest son. We were on a field trip. It was one of these field trips that all kinds of crazy things happened that were um, lived in, in family lore even to this day. But one of them was we went into this dark cave. It was in the Carter Caves in eastern Kentucky, way down underneath the ground, you know, all the stalactites, stalagmites, all this. And we get to this place, and the guide says to us, all right, we're going to stop right here and just, you know, stand still. Don't move. And I'm going to turn off the lights. And I'm going to let you experience total blackness. Have you done this? Oh, yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it? You flip off the light. I mean, look how pasty white I am. I'm not even white. I'm clear. Um, you know, and so I, I put my hand up next to my face, and I, I could touch my nose and could not see the palm of my hand. Utter blackness. And you know what he did, don't you? He lit a match after about, you know, a minute two minutes, something like that. Let us stand there and experience that darkness for a while. And he lit a match. And that tiny little bit of light, it illumined the whole cave. You could see the people around you. You could see him. You could, I mean, a little bit of light changed the whole world. Jesus says, listen to me. You are a city set up on a hill. A bright light for travelers who are walking in darkness. You are this glowing light in the middle of darkness. And, and they need you. The world needs to see this. A little bit of light. Why is the world filled with so much evil? St. Augustine reminds us, because we all come into this world with this disease. And left to ourselves, we just spiral down into darkness and more and more darkness. But Christ brings us light and gives us this light. We get to reflect this light in the world. And we become light for other people. How do we live this out? You know, it's, it's great to speak metaphorically, figuratively. We can think of it in all sorts of ways, can't we? But how does it work out in our day-to-day -day lives? And I think one is that we avoid divisiveness. We live in perhaps, uh, I don't know, at least in my lifetime, the most divisive American culture, I think, that I could ever remember. I'm sure it was probably just seems that way. Maybe it was much more divisive, I don't know. But it... It seems very divisive. Um, I don't know if any of you are ever on Twitter. Go check it out. Really divisive kind of way to live. Stay out of the fray. Don't create or participate in unnecessary conflict. We will have plenty of conflict along the way that we don't need to create more. One of the places, and I've nibbled around the corners of this for years... I'm going to take a little bigger bite, okay? Um, one of the places is politics. All of us have political opinions. I have political opinions. But they are just that, opinions. I think I know the best, but I don't. And so whatever somebody thinks about tax policy or health care or infrastructure, 
Whatever one thinks, there's a valid alternative. A little humility. A tiny bit of humility. Just because I think this doesn't mean it's right. And even about the bigger issues. You know the bigger, weightier issues. Educate yourself. Be a good voter. I believe in that. But on these intellectual matters, we are not going to draw people to Jesus by demanding that they think like we think. That is not light. That is not salt at all. What's more, we have a fallen government. I know. I know, perish the thought, right? I know this. And we, we, we've all heard that, you know, that the American exceptionalism. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying even if this is the pinnacle of all human governments, it's still not a perfect government. I happen to like what Winston Churchill said. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the way it is, isn't it? it? It's all controlled by human beings, and therefore it's going to be fallen. All governments are going to be fallen. And ultimately, all governments are going to, going to come underneath the kingdom of God. They're all going to be absorbed into Christ and his kingdom. So we do not have Republican or Democratic values. We have Christian values. And, and we follow Christ, not our, not some party, not an elephant or a donkey or whatever the other ones have. I don't know what they have. They have other things, I'm sure. A dolphin. I don't know what they are. Um, whatever that party platform is, is not the party is Christ. So many times we get caught up in trivial matters that bring no salt, no light to the world. They divide and destroy. And set them aside. What happens if somebody comes and they're needy and they don't think like you in terms of politics? So what? (laughs) You take care of them. You feed them. You help them. You do whatever you can. Because our job is to preserve, to bless, to give refuge. So that points us towards the positive, what we don't do. I mean, politics is just one issue. It could be a million other things. How do we unite? How do we, how do we preserve? How do we give direction? Jesus said it. You're a, you're a city set up on a hill. You're the light of the world. And if you're a city set up on a hill, think about what a weary traveler sees. When she or he is going through, you know, almost like, um, remember, uh, uh, Oz in, in The Wizard of Oz. Remember, Dorothy, they finally, they finally see the city way off. There it is, up on the hill. They're preserving, they're pu- are pushing towards that. That's what we are. That's what the church is. A city set up on a hill. A place of light. A place of refuge. A place of hope. A place where a weary traveler can find someone who welcomes them. The most important work that we'll ever be a part of, almost most of us, will not happen in D.C. or New York or wherever else in the world, Paris or London. It will happen in places like Maple Street and a cafe on Main Street, on Amboy Drive where I live, whatever street you live on. That's where we make the most difference in the world. That's where we are salt and light on Atterbury Boulevard, in Hudson or Stowe or Cuyahoga Falls. These are the places where we live, where, where we are in contact with other human beings, where people who are in need can find a city set on a hill, a little bit of light in the middle of a cave, someone who brings salt, preserver- preservation, 
and a little bit of delight. I think sometimes that we've forgotten that the church is supposed to be this, primarily. That we, if, we, if we lose our saltiness, how do we get resalted? We don't. We're good for nothing. We toss it on the street like gravel. We need light and salt for the world. Um, there's this uh, great autobiography about, um, written by uh, Thomas Merton um, called Seven Story Mountain. And it was about his, um, his uh, coming to faith, his conversion, and, and his decision to, um, to pursue holy orders as a, as a priest and a, and a monk. And he becomes a monk, and, and he's, a, he's brilliant. He, I mean, he's a guy who has a Ph.D. early on in, uh, in his 20s. He's traveled around the world because of his, his father. Um, and, and so he is this really brilliant guy and decides, you know, I probably should be a university professor. But he's struggling between being a university professor and whether he should be a monk. And he loves the monastic cloistered life, and he feels really called to it. And, and he, but he, he teaches at, at St. Bonaventure in Olean, New York, and he really loves that. He loves with, working with the Franciscans. So one day he's in Manhattan and he's walking with a close friend of his and he's telling him all this struggle I have. I, I, don't, I don't know whether to be a, a, a priest and a monk or a professor. I don't, I don't know which is the right one. And his friend says to him, well, what do you most want to do in life? And Merton's really frustrated with his friend. He's like, I just told you, I can't figure it out. You know, he, he says that we're walking down the street and I stop and, you know, basically he says, this is my problem. And his friend says, no, both of those are the wrong answers. And he said, oh, I suppose I should say I I need to be a good Catholic. And his friend says, no, that's the wrong answer too. And Merton says, well, I asked him, well, what's the right answer? He said, your answer should be, I want to be a saint. That's what you should say. I want to be a saint. And if you want to be one, don't you believe that God would give you the power to become one? Because a saint is not about somebody who makes miracles. Maybe they do. A saint is about a person who brings light and hope to people. A saint is someone who, who's salt, who is so salty in the best way that they, that they create this thirst among people for more of Christ. You and I, to us today, this cold day in February in Northeast Ohio, where it might have been easier, you know, just to snuggle down and have a cheery fire this morning, but you're here to hear the words of Jesus who says to you and to me, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now be it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.